And for us, we're going to continue uh, with another Q&A Sunday, as I mentioned earlier on in the service. And uh, I said last week that this is a really important thing for us to do as a church family, because it gives us an opportunity to be able to dig into the things that we're processing and that we're working through. Uh, but in a healthy family, you're able to do that with a sense of confidence and a sense of security, that it's not a bad thing to ask questions. And that particularly as we follow Jesus, there should be all sorts of things that are coming up for us and things that we're questioning and wondering about and doubting. And this is a safe space to be able to work through uh, a lot of what those things are. So it's exciting to be able to do some uh, more questions today. You have your teaching notes inside of Connect News, so if there's things that jump out from today, you can feel free to uh, write them down. And as I mentioned earlier, there's also the little Q&A card. So if there are things that you think of through today's message, uh, through the questions that we ask uh, that are related to that or separate, then feel free to jot them down and drop them in the Q&A box, and then we'll hold on to them for our next Q&A Sunday. So the first one that we're going to look at today is actually a follow-up from last week. So last week we spent a bit of time talking about Good Friday and Jesus' resurrection, and so this question was directly related to that. So first question, why is Easter called Easter? It's a really, really great question. And to be able to answer this question, we get to talk about one of the people who I think has one of the greatest names in the history of the world, St. Bede the Venerable. Is that not the most awesome name you can... St. Bede the Venerable. So St. Bede the Venerable was a British monk who was around in the 7th century. and He was a historian and he was an astrologer and uh, he was captivated by exactly this question. And St. Bede the Venerable spent a lot of time researching where did this word Easter actually come from. And so most people would say that St. Bede is the one who gives us uh, the best answer to this question. And what he discovered is that the origins of the word started with a goddess named Eostra, who was the goddess of spring. And we touched on that a little bit last week, where we talked about how Easter and Passover are all linked to springtime. And so uh, the original Old English name for April was Eostra Manath. So Eostra month, if you want to shorten that down a little bit further, which Easter month. So that's a big part of the reason why most people would say that Easter became the thing uh, that it was called, thanks to St. Bede, the Venerable. However, there are others who also have done some research and would say uh, that it comes from an old German word for East, and other people would say that that old German word actually comes from an even older Latin word uh, for the word dawn. And so all of that, again, kind of makes sense. So the sun rising in the east, the dawn happening, that happening at springtime, new life, the days getting longer, all of that stuff is all wrapped up uh, with what Easter uh, is focused on. It was one of the most fascinating things for us when we went to Canada, being in the northern hemisphere and having Easter in the spring is actually very, very different to what it is for us where we have Easter in the autumn time. But when spring is happening all around you and you've just come through awful, awful winter and finally new life is bursting and the days are getting longer, there is something really amazing that's attached to that. So we miss out on that because we're in the southern hemisphere, uh, but that's where all of that came from. Interestingly, a number of other languages don't use the word Easter in the way that we do. So French and Greek still use the word Pashka, which is the word for Passover. So, and interestingly, we, you might have heard people talk about Pascal candles around Easter time as well. So that again is another reminder of what we mentioned last week about how tied together Easter and Passover are that uh, in some languages they've actually held on to the word Passover for what they talk about with Easter. So there you go. Thank you, St. Bede the Venerable.
love that guy. All right, uh, next question. This one is a doozy, so I had a lot of fun researching this. Could you please give information about the rapture and also when it, will this happen regarding the tribulation? So we are going to do a real deep dive here. So strap yourself in because uh, we've got a little bit of work to do to answer this question. So first of all, a couple of terms. So what is the rapture? The rapture is understood to be that time when Jesus will come back and will take all of the people who follow him back to heaven. The tribulation is then what is left, which is obviously understood to be a fairly massive time of destruction as Satan and evil have their way around the earth without anyone who follows Jesus left. So where did that come from? Well, it originally came from uh, Revelation, and so there's quite a bit of that, and we'll dig into that in a moment. And there's a couple of verses in First Thessalonians as well. But the reality is that if we're honest, a lot of the focus on the rapture and the tribulation actually came from a set of books called the Left Behind series. So how many people read the Left Behind books in the 90s? Just a couple of us. <laughs> so that was something that really, really took off. And interestingly, that has shaped as much of particularly our modern focus on the rapture and the tribulation as anything else, even if you didn't read the books. So to understand more about this, we need to start by understanding a little bit more about the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation is the last book in the New Testament. It was written by John, the same John that wrote the book of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the same disciple who called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved that we talked about uh, before Easter. So uh, that John had this vision when he was stranded on an island and that vision formed the book of Revelation. He wrote down the things that he saw there and that's what we've got. Now there are three very different schools of thought about how you understand the book of Revelation. The first one is that it's historic. So there is a school of thought that the book of Revelation is actually talking about a whole bunch of things that for us have already happened and unfolded in the first century AD. So particularly this is attached to the Emperor Nero and him going in and uh, taking over Jerusalem and destroying the temple. So there are some interesting connections, such as the Hebrew word for the Emperor Nero, if you take the numerical numbers that are attached to the Hebrew letters, then you come up with 666 the number of the beast, which you're probably aware of is part of Revelation. Uh, 42 months, which is the reign of the beast in Revelation, is the exact amount of time that the siege of Jerusalem happened in AD 66 and 67 before it was overtaken and the temple was destroyed. So there is a fairly clear school of thought from some people who would say all of these events were a prophecy in terms of John's perspective. He was looking forward to this thing that was about to happen. But for the rest of us, it's actually historic and it's something that's already happened. The second school of thought is that it's imagery. So these are not literal events that we are going to unfold or have unfolded, but it's just helping us to understand the spiritual fight that's going on between God and evil and ultimately the victory that God is going to have at the end of all of that. So that's another school of thought, is that none of it's literal, it's just kind of imagery. The third school of thought is that it's futuristic. And so this is the school of thought that I think if most of us uh, were asked, we would probably say that's what I thought that Revelation was supposed to be, is that these are all events that are going to happen at some point in the future. What's fascinating is that that school of thought, which I would say is the mainstream understanding of Revelation, didn't actually kick in in a major way until the 19th century. So for the first 
number of centuries in the church, the first two schools of thought were the dominant ways that most people understood and read Revelation. It's only in the last couple of hundred years uh, that this futuristic picture of it has kicked in. That's really, really important because the way in which you choose to interpret Revelation and all of those, there are very good theologians who would say, this is the one that I've picked. So uh, whichever one you pick changes drastically your understanding of how those events are going to unfold. And in particular, coming back to our question, whether the rapture is going to happen or not. Because if you sit in the camp of saying that Revelation is primarily historic, it's already happened, or if you would say that Revelation is mainly just imagery, then you would say the rapture is not a thing that is ever going to happen. It's only if you sit in the third camp that you would say Revelation is a futuristic book that you would say, yes, this is uh, the rapture is a thing that's going to happen. However, and this is where I told you things are going to get complicated, if you sit in that third camp, so if you're someone who would say the correct interpretation of Revelation is that it's something that's yet to happen, there are three different schools of thought about the ways in which you interpret the futuristic events that are going to unfold. And all of those are tied to the idea of this thing called the millennium, which is the thousand-year reign of Jesus. So if you're a futurist person, then you're either pre-millennium, post-millennium, or a-millennium. If you're pre-millennial, then that means that you believe that Jesus will come back and then this thousand-year reign will kick in. Within that, there's two schools of thought. (laughs) And all of these can be completely backed up by Scripture. So this is one of the big challenges for us with a lot of different things, is that you can use Scripture to back up any of these different schools of thought. So none of them is more right or wrong. It's really up to you to decide which one uh, fits your way of understanding things. So if you're pre-millennial, you believe Jesus will come back and then the thousand-year reign will happen, then you either are pre-tribulation or post-tribulation. And so what that means is that if you're pre-tribulation, you believe that Jesus will come back, rapture everyone, so everyone who follows Jesus will go up to heaven, and then there will be this time, the tribulation, when Satan will run rampant and evil will have its way, and at the end of that, Jesus will come back and begin his thousand-year reign, the millennium. If you're post-tribulation, then you believe that Jesus will come back after everything's fallen apart. So things will just continue to deteriorate, get worse and worse. Then Jesus will come back and set up a thousand year reign where he's in charge and everything's great. So that's if you're pre-millennial. If you're post-millennial, then you believe that there will be a thousand year time of peace when the church will actually reign. So the church will get established. Everyone will have heard about Jesus. And so for a thousand years, everything will be really, really amazing here on earth. And at the end of that, then Jesus will come back. Or you might be amillennial, which is where you don't believe that the thousand years is a literal time period, but again, it's just symbolic and a kind of understanding of what it looks like when Jesus ultimately sits on the throne. So as I said, the reality is you can use significant amounts of scripture to back up any of those different different positions. So none of them is right, none of them is wrong. They're just different interpretations based on different ways of looking at different scriptures, not just in Revelation, but some of the things that Jesus said and some of the things that we read in the letters as well. So back to the question, what is the deal with the rapture and the tribulation? In reality, that 
whole school of thought about the rapture and the tribulation, which, as you've seen, is a very small school of thought within all the different ways of understanding Revelation, really only kicked in, as I said, in the 19th century and then in a significant way through the 20th century. As we increased our focus in the church on personal evangelism and saying that the message of Jesus is you need to believe in Jesus so that you can go to heaven... Obviously, there was a significant increase in the number of people who were talking about, well, what happens if I don't accept Jesus? What happens to me if I'm left behind? Hence where that came in. Then in the early 90s, that book was released, and then there was a whole series of books that were released that were all fiction based on just the concept of saying, imagine what would happen on earth if all of the Christians left and Satan had his way. So these amazing books were written that are very, very well-written books, and there were some movies that were released about it as well, uh, interpretations of the books, and that really captured particularly Western thought to say, oh, okay, this must be the way that it's all going to happen, because here it is, we've got it right here in these amazing books. The challenge for me is that when we focus so much on the idea of the rapture and the tribulation, for most people it ends up causing a fairly significant amount of anxiety for us. Because the focus then becomes, what if I don't get raptured? What if Jesus comes back and I am left behind? And I have to be a part of this awful tribulation where Satan's running rampant and evil is awful and all these bad things are happening. The challenge for us is to understand that for the early church in particular, so the people who were around with Jesus, their understanding was that Jesus was going to come back within a generation. And again, there are lots and lots of different references that you can look up that show that people thought within this generation, before this generation passes away, all of these things were going to happen. So they're writing with that mindset and that understanding of what's going on. But as they work through some of the implications of that, Jesus had a conversation with his disciples towards the end of his life. And ultimately, this is what we try to do with everything. It's why we talk about being Jesus-centred, because at the end of the day, we try to say, well, what does Jesus have to say? And then let's work our way out from there, rather than all these different interpretations and trying to retrofit that. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the son himself. Only the father knows. And so that's where I kind of land on this. It's to say at the end of the day, Jesus makes it crystal clear to us that nobody does know. And so trying to do all this work to say, is this the proof that this thing's going to happen? Are these events that are unfolding the beginning of the end? Is kind of a waste of energy. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of emotional energy because Jesus makes it very clear that we don't know. And if we look even at the last hundred years and reflect on the reality of world wars, Hitler coming to power, some of the global pandemics that have happened and not just ours, we've spent a lot of time talking about the Spanish flu over the last little while from a hundred years ago. If we think about natural disasters that have happened around the world, any of those you could say, well, that's clearly the beginning of the end. That's clearly the interpretation of Revelation. We just don't know. And so for me, I want to settle back and say, the end of the day, my focus is on trusting Jesus, that I don't have to feel anxious about what's going to happen because I know that my place in Jesus' family is because of what Jesus has done, not because I'm good enough, not because I've earned it, because of what Jesus has done for me. So my goal with my life is to follow Jesus every day. And if he comes back tomorrow, great, I'm ready and that will be awesome. 
If he comes back in a year, same statement. If he doesn't come back for another thousand years and I'm not here when he comes back, it doesn't matter because by that point I will be in heaven experiencing everything that he's got. So my focus every day is just on following him regardless of when he comes back rather than feeling anxious about what if he does and I'm not quite ready. So I hope that's helpful for you. It is massively complicated and uh, if, you, if that was a question that you asked and you want to dig into that more, please feel free to come and chat more. Uh, and if that's raised other questions for you, feel free to jot them down. Um, but I hope that that's been a helpful dig into something that is extremely complicated. All right, next question. A nice easy one to follow up. Who determines morality? You guys asked some really, really great questions this time. Who determines morality, God or society? Some cultures allow for a man to have multiple wives, others one. Australia allows same-sex marriage, but others don't. So when we talk about morality, we're talking about a system of values and principles that determine right and wrong. So when we talk about morality, that's what we're really saying, is what are the values that we hold on to, the principles that we hold on to that help us to say this is right and this is wrong. Now, morality obviously leads to laws that are set up based on the morals of the culture that those laws are made in. So the laws help us to understand very clearly what is allowed and what isn't allowed in terms of uh, behaviour and in terms of things like relationships, which is where things like marriage laws start to kick in. So we have to understand that laws ultimately are set by governments. And so we believe that God can work through governments. And so sometimes laws, we would say, do align with what we believe God's best is. But we also recognise that governments at other times and in some cultures make laws that have no reference to what we would understand is God's best. And so that's why ultimately there are very different laws that can make us think that there are very different morals in different cultures or even within one culture. Because sometimes there are things that are made with reference to God's way of life and other times they're made without that. In the West, lots and lots of our laws originally were based in an understanding of what God had taught us through the Bible. And so a lot of our morals in the West are shaped by that. But if you look at lots of other cultures who haven't had the Bible as a part of uh, their cultures, obviously their laws and therefore their morals can end up being in a very different place. What's interesting is to look at what Paul has to say about this. So Paul says in Romans chapter 13, everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you're doing wrong, of course you should be afraid for they have the power to punish you. They're God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. What I find really fascinating about Paul writing this is the context in which Paul is writing it. So Paul is writing to the church in Rome, who were under the Roman government, who we know weren't a really amazingly nice group of people, and certainly wouldn't have shared a lot of the morals that we would say that we have. And yet Paul is crystal clear that that government is there and our role as people who follow Jesus is to submit to them, he would say, to the church in Rome. For us, what we would do, again, is ultimately come back to Jesus, though, and say this isn't just about, well, do we adhere to the laws that we have around us? Paul says, well, you should follow the laws because if you don't, there's generally consequences of that. But to take things a significant step further, that Jesus says 
the standard by which we set our lives and live our lives, and particularly in Matthew chapter 5 he talks about this, is not just whether something is something you can get away with or not. But our standard, our morals, come from one very, very clear place. What is the most loving thing to do? Others-centred love ultimately shapes what our focus is as people who follow Jesus. So we don't just not murder because it's against the law and we might get in trouble. We don't murder because that's not a loving thing to do. We don't not steal because we might get in trouble for that. We don't steal because that's not a loving thing to do. We don't not commit adultery because there might be punishment for that. We don't commit adultery because that's not the loving thing to do. Ultimately, our focus is on saying, what is the most loving thing to do? How do we practice others-centred love, which generally actually has a much higher standard than any of the laws that are set around us? So, who sets morality? Well, ultimately, we would say that the laws that we have kind of reflect the morality of a culture. But for us as people who follow Jesus, we would say that sits above all of that. And our morals, our values and our principles are ultimately shaped by him and what it means for us to practice others-centred love. So again, hope that's helpful. If you want to follow up on that one, then please let me know. All right, next question. Does Jesus withhold blessings and inner peace if we walk around with an unforgiving heart and not loving our family members unconditionally? So, does Jesus ultimately withhold blessings and peace from us if we do the wrong thing? Uh, There's a very short answer to this question. No. So we can move on. No, no, you probably want to dig in a little bit more to that. So I would say, does Jesus withhold those things from us? No, he doesn't. And here's why I would answer it that way. In John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. Then a few verses later, Jesus says, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. Then a couple of chapters later, Jesus says, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So Jesus is very clear that he leaves us with this gift of peace, that that's what his focus is and that that is something that has been given to us as something that is seemingly unconditional. However, if we ask this question a different way, then we can get a different answer. Do we miss out on experiencing Jesus' peace when we choose not to forgive others or choose not to love others? And that's where I would say the answer is yes. When we choose not to forgive others, when we choose not to love others, that does something to us internally. We feel guilt, we feel shame, we feel frustration, we feel anger, we feel hatred towards people. And all of that inside of us stops us from experiencing the peace that ultimately Jesus wants to give us. It eats away at our thoughts, it disturbs us, just kind of makes us feel on edge. And if you can think of a time when you've ever been in conflict with someone, you know the reality of that. There's just something inside of us that feels like things aren't right. But one of the biggest challenges about what it means to follow Jesus is to recognise that he has actually given us everything that we are fully loved, fully embraced, fully forgiven, fully given a sense of peace. All of these things have been given to us through Jesus' life, death and resurrection. It's finished, it's done, it's been given to us. However, on a daily basis, we have to make choices about whether we embrace those things or not. 
Whether we choose to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus' way of life, or whether I choose to walk in a different direction. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that when we don't choose Jesus' way of life, it creates this inner conflict in us. And we don't feel a sense of peace because we know that something's not quite right that's there. The challenge for us is to not then blame Jesus for that. And in particular to say, this is Jesus or God punishing me because I've done the wrong thing. Or this is Jesus or God withholding something from me because until I get my act together, he's not going to give it to me. That's a very different mindset to saying I'm making choices that are putting barriers up that stop me from receiving what it is that God wants to give me. And so our response ends up being, how do I slow down and spend some time with Jesus and capture his, his heart, be reminded about what it is that he's got for me and what it means to follow him and to experience all the things that he's got. So I actually think that that's a really, really great place for us to wrap up our questions today and to spend a little bit of time being able to reflect on that. So we're going to use this question as a way of doing that. What is getting in the way of me experiencing God's peace? What's getting in the way of me experiencing God's peace? And this is actually one of the questions that we use in our connect groups. So one of the things we're focused on this year is increasing our time that we're spending connecting with each other and spending time with each other. And one of the ways in which we feel like it's helpful to do that is with some connect group questions. And so on the back of your teaching notes, you'll see that there's actually a set of questions that our connect groups can use, uh, but that anyone can use when they catch up with other people. And the first two questions are, where am I experiencing God's peace? And what's getting in the way of me experiencing God's peace? This is our way of being able to go a little bit deeper in our check-ins with each other to say, well, where are the moments where I'm experiencing life the way that it's supposed to be? Where are the moments where I'm experiencing a sense of God's love in my life, a sense of joy, a sense of feeling like, yes, things are the way that they're meant to be? But the second question is then to say, well, what's getting in the way of that? And that's where we take ownership of it, to say, what are the choices that I'm making? What are the habits that I'm indulging in? What are the emotions that I'm feeling and sensing? So that could be frustration or guilt or stress or anxiety. What are the things that are getting in the way? What are the barriers that are being put up between me and the peace that Jesus wants to offer me? And that then means, obviously, that we take some time to unpack, well, how can I remove those barriers so that I can experience the peace that Jesus has for me. So that's what I would like us to just take a couple of moments to be able to reflect on as we wrap our time up today and as we head into this week is to say, as you sit here this morning, what's getting in the way of you being able to experience God's peace? What are the things that are stopping you from experiencing the peace that Jesus wants to give you? And is there any part of you that is maybe thinking God's withholding that from me or God's stopping me from doing that because he's punishing me? And can I unpack all of that to say, no, these are choices that I'm making or things that are happening for me that Jesus wants to walk with me around so that I can experience the peace that he's got. So take some time. You can jot some thoughts down on your teaching notes. You can talk to the person next to you, uh, but take some time. What's getting in the way of you experiencing God's peace as we head into this week? And we'll come back and pray and transition to communion.
Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful that so many of the questions that we wrestle with, the answers are found in you, either in the teaching that you have given to us in the way that you lived your life or in who you are and what you have done for us. We know that there are so many different things as we read through the Bible uh, that raise questions for us and challenge us and that can be interpreted in so many different ways and have been interpreted in so many different ways through the centuries. My prayer is that you would continue to give us the security that comes from knowing what you have done for us and what it means to be people who follow you and then to allow everything else to branch out from that. And in the midst of that, we understand that what you offer to us is peace, the gift of shalom, life the way that it is supposed to be. And that that's something that you offer to us as a free gift that has been given, it has been done, it is offered, it is in front of us. It's something that we can receive as we sit here this morning, as we head out into this week. We're sorry that so often we put things in the way of that, that we put up barriers, walls that get in the way of us being able to experience what you've got for us through the choices that we make, through the things that we do, through the things that we say, through the habits that we embrace, even just through the things that we process. And so my prayer is that you would continue to help us to be real and vulnerable and honest about those things, to acknowledge the things that we're doing that are stopping us from receiving your peace, that we would enter into a sense of being able to journey with you about those things and to enter into the tension that sometimes kicks in around that when we know that we're out of alignment with what your best is, that then creates opportunities for us to make sometimes very hard choices. But help us to see what the end goal is in that, that we're not trying to earn your favour, we're not trying to earn your love, we're not trying to earn your blessings. We're just trying to put ourselves in a place where we can receive what you've already offered to us. And so as we head into this week, I pray for opportunities for us to recognise those moments of peace that you give us, those moments where life is the way that it's supposed to be. And in those moments where we're not experiencing that, you would help us to be able to untangle what's going on there and continue to work through those things with you. In your name we pray. Amen.